Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Partner Over Observer, where we study the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he tells Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For more information and resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This morning, we're going to continue in our series um, studying Jesus's words, I will build my church. Our primary passage is still Matthew 16, verse 18. Our secondary passage today will be 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. That's where you want to turn if you're turning. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Everybody good? You all okay if I roll here? Father, we love you. We adore you. We honor you as Lord over the heavens and the earth. Holy Spirit, we believe your scripture is God breathed. It is your, your testament, your words coming through. So we ask that as we look at your scripture, we ask that you would speak, that you would move, that you would have your way. You be center. Hide me behind the cross today. Let Jesus be glorified. We need your voice, Holy Spirit. Y'all pray that with me for just a moment. We need you, Holy Spirit. We need to hear you, God. We need to hear you come in this time. Come in this time, God. We didn't come for a lecture. We came to hear the inspired word of God. Speak, oh Jesus. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6. John Wesley once said, Having first gained all you can, and secondly saved all you can, then give all you can. John Piper wrote in 1731, he began to limit his expenses, he being John Wesley, limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. In the first year, his income was 30 pounds, and John Wesley decided that he could live on 28 pounds, and so he gave away two. In the second year, his income doubled, but he held his expenses even, and so he had 32 pounds to give away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he gave away 62 pounds, and his uh, long life, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds a year, but he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds. Piper continues, this so baffled the English tax commissioners that they investigated him in 1776, insisting that for a man of his income, he must have silver, he must have silver dishes that he was not paying tax on. Essentially, John Wesley got audited. John Wesley wrote back, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many around me want bread. When he died in 1791 at the age of 87, the only money mentioned in his will was the coins in his pockets and a little bit of cash he had in his dresser. The large majority of the 30,000 pounds he earned over his life was given away. The way you handle money is part of your legacy and part of your testimony. There's nothing like a life that teaches selfless obedience to Jesus and lives selflessly obedient to Jesus. Consistency in a man's witness and lifestyle is a powerful thing. You will have no anointing and no presence of God on your ministry and on your life as you share the gospel until you have consistency, at least to some extent. Your message has to be backed by your lifestyle. Now, my pastor, our pastor, would always 
tell, tell of when he took his first church, he was 24 years old, took his first church somewhere in northwest Florida, and his church was in a, a poor area. I, I grew up in northwest Florida in Escambia County. One time was one of the poorest counties in the nation. Um, and so he's pastoring a church in a very poor community. And at 24, he decided that he was never going to talk about money. He'd never teach on money. He said it felt wrong to talk about money or the need to give, to live selflessly financially to many who were struggling themselves. He said it felt grimy. He later said it was one of the greatest mistakes of his earthly ministry. Because financial stewardship, discipline in your finances, is a part of your spiritual walk. The scriptures teach thoroughly that greed is a temptation that wants to rob you of your faith and legacy. Greed is a deadly vice. It's deadly for the rich and it's deadly for the poor alike. And I remind you of Jesus' words often from Matthew 6, verse 24, when he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other. Or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Those are the words of Jesus. They're not my words. Jesus said, you'll either serve God or money. And whichever one you serve, you'll love. And whichever one you deny, you'll hate. Jesus says the enemy of your soul would love for you to deny Jesus and become a slave to greed. Jesus says you will daily have to choose me over your own desires to hoard your income and your selfish gain. You'll have to choose me over material goods. Those are the words of Jesus. So our pastor said that he made it a habit to talk to the church about money at least once every year. Now, I've been here for over a year and a half now, and I've yet to broach the subject because I don't want you to think of me as grimy. But I'm not grimy, and I feel a responsibility to lead in modesty. I feel a responsibility to lead in contentment. And I feel a responsibility to lead in generosity. I want my kids to be sure that Haley and I practice what I preach. Haley being my wife. Um, I don't have a girlfriend. Just on the side. I just have a wife. I recommend that, by the way. Um, and so Haley and I, um, you know, life's a big, a big balancing act. And so we'll, we'll be with our kids in Walmart. And one of our kids will say, I really need this doll. You know, I really got to have it. And I'm like, I feel you. Um, and so I try to talk to my kids often about, okay, and, this is it, and I get down in my dad mode and I'm on my knees. And I say, okay, as a family, we have only so much money, only so much resources. And I say, oh, we're going to tithe. We're going to give the first tenth of our resources to the church. And then I say, and then we've got needs, right? We've got to pay for our food. We've got to pay for our house. We've got to pay for our, our car and, and clothes. We have needs. And then I say, but after all that, we've got a little bit of money left over. And I say, what we do with that money is our decision. So we could give that money to missionaries, and we have missionaries that we support as a family, so I always list them. We can give that money to our missionaries, or we can give that money to someone who we know is struggling right now, or we can buy this doll. Which one do you want to do? And usually my kids will say, let's give the money away. But every now and then, I just buy the doll because they're cute, and they get excited, right? And I like it, okay? Every now and then, I just buy the thing, and you're we're all stuck in this balancing act of what we're going to do with our money. Pastors used to always say, show me your checkbook and I'll show you your God. Show me your checkbook and I'll show you your God. I heard that statement a lot as I matured in the faith and it kind of began to haunt me. Show me your checkbook and I'll show you your God. 
Men of God of old, like Wesley, lived radically selfless lives, and they chose to leave far below their means in order that they are able to give away more. That was really very common for Christians in past generations. They saw that as part of their Christian responsibility to use their resources to give money to gospel ministry. They saw it as part of their Christian responsibility to use their financial resources to care for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. It was part of their Christian spirituality and their responsibility to live selfless with their finances. And it's also quite true, it's very true historically, that the early church, early Christianity was a poor man's religion. There's no doubting that. The early church, uh, were, they were rather poor. They were not, for the most part, the wealthy. But poverty is not a sign of godliness. We're certain that there will be no poverty when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. So poverty is not a testament to your personal holy, holiness, nor a part of your, our Christian ethic. Poverty is not a testament to my personal holiness, but selflessness is. Poverty is not godly, but selflessness is is godly. Selflessness is profoundly godly, maybe one of the chief cornerstones of godliness. Agape love. Selfless love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as, all, as yourself, and then you'll fulfill all the law. The way to fulfill perfect holiness is to selflessly love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor, to care for your neighbor, to worry about your neighbor's needs with the same intensity and passion that you care about your own needs. That's the foundation of holiness. So many in church history chose to live in lack, some out of godly motives in order to give their time and money to the suffering, some out of a misunderstanding of godliness. There were always those who uh, lived in a cave somewhere, poor, with this aesthetic lifestyle and called it godly, and they weren't actually giving, working hard and giving their resources away to the suffering. That's godly. It's not godly just to be lazy and live in a cave and never do anything. Many in Eastern culture have got that wrong. They've thought of living in some cave poor as being a sign of real godliness, of not being in love with material goods. They think that's what it means to be holy. Many in the East get that wrong. But it's equally true that Western Christianity has not through, thought through the pursuit of wealth and the scriptural ideas of covetousness and greed. Eastern Christianity, for years, idolized poverty Western Christianity has not thought through covetousness and greed. Where does the traditional American dream work hard and excel American dream that I deeply believe in and you deeply believe in? Where does it interact with these biblical concepts of greed and covetousness? When are we working hard, not out of a desire to provide for our families, but to provide for our egos? When do we sacrifice our families on the altar of our careers? The American dream that says that you should work hard and can work hard and provide for your family and, and help to lift people out of suffering and poverty, I believe in. But our wires get crossed so often. They may be totally crossed at this point where success and material gain are the ultimate price. And for me as your pastor to move along and pretend like this isn't an issue is helpful for no one. So as I thought these issues through this week, my mind slipped to an old passage, not an old passage, but a passage in, in John chapter 12, but something I used to teach 
when I was younger. Did I do something that was funny? Because I'm young. I'm still young. Oh, I get it. I always miss the joke. I'm like, is there, is, is there something on my face? <laughs> yeah, when I was a little bit more young. Um, the only disciple to portray Jesus was Judas, and he portrayed Jesus for a bag of silver. John chapter 12 tells of a woman who pours out her perfume on Jesus Perfume that was expensive, and it was her great life's act of worship. And Judas replies, why wasn't this money, why wasn't this perfume sold and this money given to the poor? And John 12, 6 says this. Talking of Judas, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. There's some speculation about the word used for money bag here. It's only used twice in the New Testament and both times by John describing Judas. The word is never used other than that. It's always used by John to describe the bag that Judas carried money in. The word is unique because it's usually only described as a musician's case to carry their reeds or mouthpiece. Some suggest that John, who has a love for prophetic imagery, wants you to know that Judas was carrying the money in a musician's bag. I used to pack my clothes in a guitar case because I was too cheap to buy a suitcase. So I put my underwear and my socks in the little part where your picks and your capos go. I'd go somewhere and people say, oh, you brought your guitar. And I'd say, no, I brought my clothes. But that's the idea that some speculate was happening here, that Judas was using an old musician's bag to store the money for the ministry of Jesus, and he was stealing out of it. The name Judas is derived from the name Judah, which means praise or to praise. Some suggest that John is playing with prophetic imagery here, that Judas, whose name means worshiper, is carrying around money in his musician's bag and stealing out of it. And the point being that Judas's praise and worship is choked out by his greed. Now, that may be a stretch. I would never teach that with dogmatic passion. But the speculation is worth pondering. Satan was a worshiper, but desired more than God had allotted for him. So he left his position and raised his head against God. And hell caused the only disciple to betray Jesus, to betray Jesus over a bag of silver. Hell establishes her reign and her kingdom through selfishness. Greed leads Judas to betray Jesus. Greed is a tool in the hands of hell. There is a primal instinct that we all carry deep within our flesh to think about us first, to think about us alone, and to hoard all of our resources for us. And hell plays off of that primal instinct to choke out your faith and your fruitfulness with greed. Greed causes many to neglect the gospel and to neglect their neighbor. So God, in his great wisdom and sovereignty, decided that he would build his church as people learn to open up their hands. 
and the finances, the resources that God uses to feed the poor, that God uses to build ministry, He allows to pass through the hands of saints. And so hell wants me to live this way. And when my fist is closed, my faith is choked out, God says, I will build my church as they learn to live this way. And every time a dollar passes through my fingers, demons tremble. Hell blushes and Satan trembles. Because if he could just get me this way, then he would have me. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those who desire to be rich, read the scripture with some intentionality, man. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. If I allow material goods and gaining assets, if I set my heart on becoming rich, the scriptures teach me that I will fall into temptation, into snares, senseless and harmful desires. It will plunge me into destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money causes people to wander from faith and pierce themselves. Why don't we talk about that? Matthew 13, verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, gives us this account of a man sowing seed. And he says this in Matthew 13, 22. Explaining the parable. The one whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word in the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And again, John Wesley, having first gained all you can. Secondly, saved all you can, then give all you can. Point one, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you pursue wealth and get in the the rat race of needing more, 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 you may gain resources over your lifetime, but you only feel as though you're empty because wealth and what it means to be wealthy is a relative term. And so you get to this point and then you realize that you really need to get to this point. And you're on this ladder and you're climbing and the ladder just keeps growing. And you're, you're gaining ground, but you're never gaining ground. 
So the scripture says that true gain is godliness with contentment. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Covetousness is hell-like. Covetousness is a type of lust. In the Ten Commandments, God tells Israel in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, that they should not cover their neighbor's house nor his wife. Why does God use coveting someone's house and their wife in the same phrase? Because they're both lust. God says to Israel, you are not allowed to lust after your neighbor's things. His wife or his house. The Hebrew word translated as covet means to desire or to take pleasure in things that have not been given to you. Paul tells us that this kind of lust or the love of money will produce in us all kinds of evil. There's some debate about how that line should be translated. Many of us grew up reading translations that said that the love of money is the root of all evil. Modern translations say it's the root of all kinds of evil. And there's debate about whether or not the text actually means that every evil births out of this pursuit of money. But there is no argument that the original tent meant to communicate that greed produces things like jealousy. Greed brings and produces things like murder. Greed produces things like deceit, ungratefulness, idolatry. Greed is a sickbed of spirituality. First, to fall for the deception that having that new car, that new iPhone, that bigger house, that gaining that asset would make you feel fulfilled is to say to God, I am not satisfied in you. I need stuff to be satisfied. And St. Augustine did not say that in your heart there's a car-shaped hole. Or in your heart there's an iPhone-shaped hole. He said there's a God-shaped hole. Only God can satisfy. You were made to worship and glory in Him. You must be satisfied in God alone. It is not wrong to enjoy God's creation with a thankful heart, to love good coffee or to love the mountains or being near the ocean, but you have to steward your heart in such a way that you never begin to chase after material goods in such a way that says, if I have this, then I will be satisfied. No, you be satisfied in God, man. Or you'll never be satisfied at all. You find the fulfillment to all your deepest desires in Jesus. Second, God has ordained our paths. He has allotted to us certain gifts and talents and abilities. To constantly need more, to crave more, to spend your life in lustful desire for more is to say to God, what you've done for me is not enough. To submit to an unhealthy desire for material assets is to say to God, you are not a good provider. You've provided this. Yes, I've got clothes on my back and food in my stomach, but it ain't enough, God. Financial fear is driven by a lack of trust in the provision of the Father. Materialism is a lack of appreciation for what God has provided. Financial fear is a lack of trust in the provision of the Father. Materialism is a lack of appreciation for what God has provided. And once you go down that road where you leave the principle of Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added into you. Once you leave the place that says, my job is to seek God and his kingdom, and he's going to take care of all my needs, you will begin to build an entirely different ethic. 
When money becomes your God, your ethical system begins to shift. And you leave the place of seek first the kingdom and you enter into the place of the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And when you step into that place, your life is no longer about loving, serving, caring for your neighbor. And where you once would have stopped and picked up dinner for your neighbor who you knew was sick, you're now not going to do that because you're trying to save money for that thing you need. And your ethic actually begins to shift. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. This whole thing is about your relationship with money. Lay up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. If you lay up your treasures in heaven, then your heart will follow that. Your heart will be in heaven in the new kingdom. If you're storing up treasures on earth, your heart will be there. And where your heart is, your eyes are. And if your eyes are full of light, then your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are full of darkness, how great is the darkness in you? If your eyes are set only on material gain, then the light in you becomes darkness and you're filled with darkness. And then Jesus says, you can't serve God in money. Pick. Don't spend your life laying up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. People steal, fire ravages, and stock markets crash. Has the biblical ethic concerning finances shaped us or has the Western ideal, the great American dream, twisted, robbed us of our commission to live free of the chains that greed brings? Is there a chance that money is your master? If you serve her, she will dictate your values. Once you would never lie. Now you lie when you're cheating on your taxes. You would never gossip unless your competition for that promotion is thrown under the bus. You would never ignore the suffering of the neighbor. You just got to pay off that car first, which you didn't need in the first place. If you serve Jesus, he dictates your values. You will make sacrifices for the sake of loving and serving. You will lay up treasures in heaven, sowing your money into ministry, into gospel work, into helping and relieving suffering. You'll be quick to help, quick to serve, quick to bless. Point two. Hell wants you bound by greed. God wants you content, thankful, and storing up heavenly treasure, always aware of the fact that all you have is from him and currently in process of decaying right from out, from under your feet. So here we go. Everybody say, here we go. You're like, I don't want to listen to you talk today. Well, you got to, okay, because it's rude for you to get up and walk out. So I got you. Two extremes. The modern prosperity gospel says that God wants you to have that new BMW more than you want to have that new BMW. If you're struggling financially, it's because you don't have any faith and Jesus died to bring you worldly gain. It goes on saying God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and you're his son. And so wealth is your inheritance. And to that extreme, I say rubbish, garbage. Please turn the TV off and please throw the book away. 
Burn it. Good old-fashioned book burning. Burn it. It's not biblical theology. It's the teaching of hell. It's really not biblical theology. So I reject thoroughly the concept that Jesus died so that we can be materially rich. He died to wash me of my filth. He died to purchase for me redemption. He died to graft me into his family. He died to establish me as a son to fill me with his Holy Spirit. He died to deal with my guilt, shame, and sin issues. He died to deliver me of death and depression. He died to bring me joy, life, and peace in the Holy Ghost. He died to call me son even though I was rebellious and had betrayed him. He died for my adoption's sake. He died to love me. He did not die just to make me rich, shallow. I don't like that teaching at all if you haven't learned that yet. The other side of the extreme is to swing in the other way and and to say that poverty is godly. My sister told me once, she was serving as a missionary in Gambia, maybe in some country. She moves every year, I think. Um, She was serving as a missionary in some company, some country, living in a hut, and she was skinny, boy. She was skinny, and um, she was just like, you know, eating rice every day, and she was teaching Bible studies and um, just really trying to love this community. And she came home for a visit, and we were all like, man, we got to put some food in this girl. And, um, and someone said to her, oh, I'd love to go live with you in your hut and just live that simple life. It must be so godly living there in that impoverished state that you, no one struggles with materialism when no one has anything. That's got to be godly. And my sister said, uh, she said to me, she didn't say to the person. She said to me, she said, I get so frustrated because she said, it's not like we're over there celebrating poverty. It's not like I'm looking at a kid with a swollen belly and saying, praise God, you're holy. She said, like, my entire like, life is like, let's get that kid some food, man. She said, it's not like we're celebrating the poverty. It's, oh, we're holy. She's going, man, this mother needs health care. How can we get health care? How can we get clean water? We need to teach and educate. They need to really understand the gospel. These men need to get up and find some work that's dignified. She's not sitting over there going, poverty is holy. She's going, we gotta, we're trying to deliver people out of poverty. And so the flip side of it is that the goal is not poverty. Jesus told us to feed the hungry, not to clap and say, you're so holy. In this new kingdom at the table, we'll all sit. Add on the last day, there'll be enough food for everybody. And in this house, there is enough room. And the Christian church has always worked to elevate humanity out of devastating circumstances, not to celebrate those circumstances as a staple of holiness. So what's right? Many in the prosperity movement say Abraham was rich and Job was rich and Solomon was rich. God wants me rich. And I respond with the words of Jesus. Foxes have holes and birds of air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I respond with the words of Peter. Money or gold, silver and gold, I have not. But what I do have in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The words of Paul. I've learned in all circumstances to be content. The secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So how do we find the balance of not idolizing poverty, spiritualizing poverty, while worshiping wealth? How do we live with Wesley in a place where we earn all we can, save all we can through good, hard work ethic, and we live modestly so that we can give more? I want you to write this down. You're like, I don't have a pen. We'll find one. Our deepest desire as believers is not riches nor is it poverty. It is first godliness with contentment. 
Second, to worship with thankful hearts. Third, to store up for ourselves heavenly treasures to advance in God's kingdom. I'm not repeating it. Ask your neighbor, okay? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, I was just... And so you're stuck. You guys hear me? You're stuck in between these two extremes, trying to figure out how you're going to use money. What do you do with the fact that every day money has to pass through your hands? I think that God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, has given us tools to help us keep our hearts postured in a way where money or greed doesn't grip us. First, there's a biblical principle called tithe. Everybody say tithe. Tithe means a tenth. Scripturally speaking, a tithe is the first tenth of your income, which is dedicated to the house of God. Many say tithing is a part of the law and we're not under the law. Tithing is a part of the law, but tithing was far before the law. Abraham tithed. Abraham was rich by all natural standards and Abraham tithed to the priest Melchizedek. Abraham lived hundreds of years before the law. Genesis 28, verse 20 through 22, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob said, as God blesses me, this is Jacob at Bethel, where he has the dream of the ladder going up to heaven. At Bethel, Jacob says, I will tithe. He made a vow. I will tithe a full tenth of everything that you give me. Think through the timeline of the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 patriarchs of Israel. Jacob's son, Joseph, was sold into slavery. He landed in Egypt. Jacob's son, Joseph, in Egypt, rose to prominence and power, and he stored up goods for a great famine. Israel and all of his sons, they moved to Egypt to, to take part of the resources that Joseph has saved for them. And so now Israel and his sons live in Egypt. They live there for 400 years, eventually becoming slaves. So Israel is in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years later, there's a son born named Moses. God uses that son Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And in the wilderness, God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai and gives him the covenant with the law. And in the law, Israel's commanded to tithe. Now you say, I'm not under the tithe, but Abraham tithed hundreds, 400 years at least, 500 years. Abraham was tithing before the law. So yes, it's a part of the law, but it's not just the law. I said all that to say that the godly who are blessed, scripturally speaking, tithe the first tenth of their income. Tithing is not bringing the monthly leftover that you deem you can afford this month, it's bringing the first full tenth of your income. If that's if you make $50,000 a year, you would bring $5,000 a year to the house of God, something like $400 a month. If you make $50,000 a year and you bring $80 a month, I think your gift is wonderful and beautiful, but it's not quite a tithe. Keep going. Keep pressing. I'm not throwing stones at all. Don't hear me throwing stones. But, but I want you to ponder and really think through whether or not greed has gripped you. The tithe is a tool to help us live free from the chains of greed. If you've chosen not to tithe, not to be a tither, is it possible that you've idolized wealth? 
and you bring what's left over or what you deem you can afford just to ease your conscience. I often get the response, well, I can't afford to live if I tithe. I can't afford to pay my bills and tithe. First, what do you mean by you can't afford to live? Are you living within your means? What do you mean by I can't afford to live? Because you may mean I can't afford to live like my heart really wants to live. What you may mean is that I'd like a bigger house and I know I can't really afford it and tithe, so I buy the bigger house and choose not to tithe. That's not saying I can't afford to live. That's just saying that you prioritized your need, your, your wants over giving to the house of God. You guys kind of hear what I'm saying? I feel like I'm being rude, but I'm, I'm, I'm being honest. Second, God is your provider. To say I can't afford to live off of what I have is to say I don't believe God can take care of me. There's only one scripture in all of the, of the biblical account in which God tells Israel to test him. Malachi 3.10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to, t- put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, God says bring the full tithe and watch me bless you. I don't think we tithe with the prosperity gospel mindset. If I give $1,000, God's going to have to give me $10,000. Take that somewhere else. That irks me. But we do tithe with the understanding that God can make my 90% stretch. And there are times where I have a need. And, oh, God, I don't have enough money for this need. And God makes the money come from somewhere that I don't even know where it came from. God makes the tires last longer and the appliance is only supposed to last for five years and it's last for 20 and you ain't had to buy a new one yet. God makes it, he makes the 90 stretch far, far further than the 100%. Gosh, we're going too long. Oh, don't say that. I've got plenty of time. I'll wrap up quick. What about the New Testament? People will ask me often, does the New Testament command tithing? I get that question a lot, and I think it starts with the wrong premise. Christianity is not a religion of law. It's, it's not a religion of what, what is commanded of me. Christianity is a religion of being set free to live extravagantly. You don't, Christians don't say, what, what, is, what are my duties? Christians say, what do I get to do for the gospel? And so it's, the wrong question starts off on the wrong premise. The early church, so, so um, Irenaeus, oh, my date might be wrong, 180 AD, would say stuff like, all the, he, he'd say, he said something like this, the, the Jews were commanded to tithe. We, the church, all that we have belongs to God, all of our money. We sell everything. We give everything we can to missions, everything. He was saying that the tithe is just the base principle, everything we have. The tithe is just the start. We'll do much more. What about the New Testament? Does it command it is the question. Matthew 23, 23, the woes that I read to you last week. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and come in and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, you neglect the weighty, the weighty matters of the law, justice and, and righteousness, but you do tithe. He doesn't say you shouldn't tithe. He says that you should have done while you were caring for the poor and the needy. And you could say, well, the Pharisees were under the law. So what about the New Testament church? The, the New Testament church is in this strange transition period 
um, they've left the temple, so they're not bringing a tithe to the temple, and they're kind of transitioning. These churches don't, they're not very established yet, is what I'm trying to say. A lot of them in houses, um, it's a lot of missions. But what we do know about the early churches, that they did things like they sold fields and property to give money so that they could help take care of the poor. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, On the first day of the week, everyone bring your gift. Everyone bring your money on the first day of the week so that when I come, we can take all that money and we'll take it to the churches in Jerusalem and we'll bless the churches in Jerusalem. We'll give it to the apostles. They'll distribute it. And so 1 Corinthians 16, we do know that the church brought money on the first day of every week. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that those who teach the scriptures are, are worthy of their work. He's basically saying that if someone spends their life teaching the church and feeding the church and caring for the church, they should be uh, accommodated with a salary. There were people in the early church whose lives were spent working for the church. And so we do know that, that people received a paycheck. Paul said it's right. You shouldn't muzzle an ox while he works. That means don't work a man to death and not give him financial means. The laborer is worthy of his wages, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So, so there's, I can't point to a text where it says, Paul says, you must tithe and you must give this much to missions. No percentage, but we do see that the early church was giving money and was, was, was giving money to missions. They were giving money to the poor. They were giving money to the local church to raise up pastors to accommodate the, the missionaries and the pastors who were serving. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? Y'all ain't listening to me today. I'm going to run through this next section quick. Next, a tithe is your first tenth. When we say tithes and offerings, we mean offerings is when you go above and beyond. Offerings you can give to the poor. Offerings you can give to the church for special projects. An offering would be like, I gave $500 to help our youth get on their trip. An offering could be giving to missions or missionaries overseas. The tithe is what you bring to this, the house where you worship. There is no account in scripture where a tithe is not given to a priest, a place of worship, or a church. The tithe is always brought to the church. Above and beyond is given to missionaries, to the poor, to the needy. And so I think biblically and scripturally, as Christians who go above and beyond, we're not law people, we're grace people. We do more. I think Christians, we, when we look at our budget, the first 10 goes to God, not the leftover. The first 10 goes to the church. And then we, we start to budget for, we start to budget money to be able to give to the poor. We start to budget money to, to give to missionaries. We start to budget money to be able to help the widows. Your budget should have little slots where you're spending money on someone other than you. You should budget money to spend on someone other than you. That's where you step into the realm of tithe and offering and you begin to rid your heart of greed. Greed's losing territory in your heart. Ah, I don't have time to talk about the, the, the good Samaritan when the priest and the Levite walk by a man and they don't help him when he's left beaten and robbed and the good Samaritan stops, takes care of him, pays for all of his needs. We pass by people nonstop who are hurting, broken, who need help, but we don't have any money to help them because we owe the credit card for the stuff we bought that we shouldn't have bought in the first place. The Samaritan had extra cash to help somebody because he budgeted, I think, to be able to help people. Greed locks up your finances. Listen to me. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm trying to be honest. Greed will lock your finances up. And you'll say, oh, one day I want to give to missions. I can't today. In reality, maybe you didn't need to buy the thing that you bought that put you in debt. Is money your God or is God your God? When Jesus is your God, you start, to, you start to account for gospel work. 
No, good God, I'm going to close. Somebody from worship team, come up here and do something spiritual. Statistics say that the average Christian in the West gives something like 2% of their income to gospel work. 2%, that means tithe, gives submissions, gives the needy. Christians in the West give 2% of their income to gospel work. Statistics say that something like 18% of Christians actually give a tithe, a tenth. Consider the fact that the Western church is the wealthiest Christian, we're the wealthiest Christian people in all of history. Think that through. We are the richest bunch of Christians that have ever lived. And we give 2%. And we stand around and fight over taxes. Should we be taxed more or taxed less? If we were taxed more, maybe the government could do more to help the people in the inner city. If we were taxed less, then maybe our businesses would thrive. And we stand around and argue about taxes and what the government's going to do. Why our churches and our, and our missionaries and our gospel projects are not properly funded. What if we stopped fighting about taxes and all of the Christians in the West actually tithed? Woo! What if rather than looking at our government, listen to me, what if rather than looking at our government and saying, do something about the problems in our inner city, what if the Christians who are the wealthiest Christians to ever live on the face of the earth, what if they tithed and gave above and beyond and the church did something about the problems in the inner city? And what if the people who were mentoring our kids weren't teaching them sexuality, but spirit-filled people of God were teaching the kids in the inner city about sexuality? What if the church was the, the solution to the issue? Oh, but you'd have to live selfless for a minute. What if our churches weren't underfunded? What if our missionaries had plenty of money? What if we had enough money to send more missionaries, to train more young people in gospel work? What if we had more money to do more food banks? What if we could disciple and train young women fresh out of incarceration? Like as people got out of jail, we had little little ministries set up to disciple and train them, teach them work, teach them to share the gospel, share their faith in their new workplace. What if we were able to do, to, we were able to do more to help teen moms in our region and we just went after the idea of abortion? Like you don't need to have an abortion that will help you financially we'll help you get a job we'll help you with clothes what if we were able to do more in that area what if we were able to have bible camps for their kids and for their teens what if the church those who say they belong to jesus actually began to live like jesus What if we stopped pointing our fingers at the government and said, fix it? And we started looking to our pocketbooks, giving selfishly, and we, we, we started fixing it. The church is built as God delivers us from greed. The church thrives as the church opens her hands. Our local church can do more, reach more people, serve our community better as we rebel against the God of greed. God does not need your money to build this church. God does not need your money to build any other local church. God does not need your money to build his universal church. God does not need your money. God chooses to allow you to partake in his mission. He chooses to allow the finances that will build his church to pass through your hands to bring him glory. Every time it passes through my hands, it's a testimony of my redemption and my liberty over the God of greed, and it makes hell blush. The demonic is embarrassed 
as our palms open up. Rather than hoarding money for me, I allow it to pass through my hands and every dollar declares Jesus is Lord. Every dollar declares my God is the God of heaven. My home is the new kingdom. Every dollar declares the gospel is the most meaningful message, the most meaningful movement, the most meaningful thing in my life. Every dollar declares Jesus alone is my satisfaction. I don't need your stuff. Stop marketing to me to buy new, more stuff. I sat down with my oldest daughter this week. I want to teach her well. And we went through our mailbox. We check our mailbox about once every three months. So it's slammed full. And we go through our mailbox. And we're going through all the ads. And every ad I would stop and I would say, what is this? Oh, they want me to buy, they want me to buy new cable. Do we need new cable? She'd say, no, we don't need no cable. i say, you can't have our money. Pick up the next ad. Oh, they want us to buy their, oh, they want me to buy glasses. I don't even need glasses. I'm not, I, my eyes still work. I don't need, they don't need our money. And so I'm, I make my daughter go through all of these ads. Why do all these people want our money? And then I, and then I start talking, what do you want to do with our money? And I start saying, maybe, maybe we should, maybe what we should do is we should try to see if we can save enough money to support another missionary. And I, and I was telling my daughter, you see the world, they market to us. You need more stuff. And I was trying to teach my daughter to look at all the marketing and say, no, nah, I don't need that. I don't need that. Every dollar that passes through your hands towards God's kingdom declares Jesus alone satisfies me. Every dollar declares Father is my provider. I don't have to hoard my money. He's got tomorrow worked out and he's good. Every dollar declares my treasure is in heaven. I'm investing in the coming kingdom. Every dollar declares there will be people in heaven. There will be saved souls who glorify Jesus because of my giving. There will be people in the kingdom of heaven, who I never met, who some missionary won to the gospel, who I gave money to, and I will be rewarded for that gospel work. My dollars declare things. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.